now, this is Box to Box Offside with Rob Gilbert and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello. Hello and welcome to Box to Box Offside. You're with Rob Gilbert and Willem van Denderen for a podcast where we profile a person whose life has been lived through football, either domestically or around the world. People who we watch or watched on the pitch or had our heart rates pumping as they describe moments in history. Those who wrote the prose and descriptions of iconic moments are the ones behind the scenes who set the stage for the stars on it. Now, on the eve of Australia's fifth straight World Cup, we now have a generation of football fans who almost take for granted Australia playing on world sports' biggest stage. But for those of us who endured the barren years between 1974 and 2006, it wasn't always so. And this week's guest, Ron Smith, is a man who had plenty to do with breaking the 32-year drought. After injury ended his England football dream at the age of 25, Ron migrated to Australia in 1974 and began the journey that saw him inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame 25 years later in a career started with coaching highlights, most notably as head coach at the Australian Institute of Sport for over a decade, where he presided over the development of Australian football's golden generation. Smith has been a pioneer in footballing analysis, and we welcome you back to Box to Box. Ron, how are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Actually, I'm just recovering from a dose of COVID, so ah. excuse me if I um, break out every now and again for a coughing fit. No, but, mate, we, we, we've, yeah. got a, we've got a wonderful editor here, mate, so our listeners, even if you do, might not even notice it throughout <laughs> the course of the conversation. Okay. So, Ron, you're born in 1945 in Enfield in, in Middlesex. Uh, so going back to your boyhood days, um, can you tell us who your most early football influences were, your dad, an uncle, uh, uh, someone who, who you remember putting that ball in your hands or at your feet? I guess you could say I grew up in a, in a football culture where um, TVs actually weren't that popular in the early 50s. So as a kid growing up, everything we did was based around football. It was either playing with a balloon indoors. Um, I had a slightly older brother, and so we did everything together. Um, the, the fireplace would be one goal, as long as the fire wasn't on. And the other side of the room um, was the other goal, and we did that. We did boxing. We did all sorts of things. Um, and even to the point of learning how to kind of read and write, it was based around football. And I can recall vividly um, writing down all the goalkeepers in the first division, all the clubs, the grounds, the names of the grounds. That was kind of like homework. And I was only seven, eight years of age in that. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so it was... I was just absorbed in football from as long, far back as I can remember. And uh, and Ron, on your website, I, I, I found a, a wonderful article written by one of our greatest football writers, the the late Mike Cockrell. Um, and and I, if you just indulge me a little, I want to share a, a little of, of what Michael wrote. Uh, he said, Ron Smith wanted to play for Tottenham Hotspur badly. Yeah. In his summer holidays, he would ride his push bike from his North London home to Chesunt, the Spurs training ground with a couple of mates. They would walk along the riverbank next to the ground and pull the ivy off the fence so they could peek inside. Without fail, they were at the gates of the training ground when the players would emerge hunting autographs. Danny Blanchflower, Blanchflower mm -hmm. Danny, Dave Mackay, John White, Bobby Smith, Les Allen, absolute legends. Spurs won the double in 1961 and Smith was in heaven. He dreamed of being a professional and dreamed of playing for Spurs. 
and and as he says in that article, it feel, felt like your your future was preordained at the time. Is that how you remember it, Ron? Um, yes, very much so. I I went through school life and did the absolute minimum because in my mind um, I was going to be a professional footballer. There was no question about it, and um, I, I I learned later on that a bullet is one thing. But being able to survive physically is another. And I look back now with all the years I've spent in youth development and I was one of those kids who had enormous potential but physically wasn't born with a good body. And I was one of those that I've I've experienced um, dealing with who are always injured. Mm -hmm. And I would now put myself in that category. Plus I was... um, we didn't know about it in those days, but I was a classic relative age effect. I was a baby in the age group and small to boot, mm-hmm. playing against kids who may have been up to a year older, but within the same group. Um, you don't know that in those days. And it, I, I always played up age groups anyway, even though I was quite small. Um, I joke and I say to people, I... I didn't shoot up until I was 17 years of age. Uh, and if you know me, I'm only five foot eight now. So, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, – but, yeah, so – but that's life. Um, and I must admit that when professional football was obviously not going to be on the cards, um, I still played football because I loved it mm. and as long as I could. And then I got interested in coaching when I couldn't play anymore. And, and that's, that's still quite a young age. Yeah, and that journey started um, at uh, the Borough Road Co- College in Osworth. Yes. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and and you mentor the, the the man who became the inspiration, Tommy Tranter. Um, yeah. You came under his influence, um, and 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 that's where the 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 future started to crystallise. You'd still play football, but not at that highest level. No, and um, for the first time in my life, I actually I met a coach who kind of made me realise that there were reasons why things happened in football. Mm. Until that time, I just went out and played football. I really had no idea what I was doing or why. Um, If somebody got in the way, then I would try and beat them, Uh, things like that. You know, um, I didn't really understand anything about the principles of play or why we did certain things Uh, until I went to college and I was fortunate to meet somebody who kind of made me think and got me hooked on understanding more about the game and coaching. And once once I was hooked, it, it was the catalyst for years and years of wanting to know more. And that hasn't really changed after all these years. Yeah, well, not only hooked, Ron, you were just one of five students from a class of 55 who passed. At 22 years old, you were the youngest. Yeah. Uh, so it showed pretty early on you you had some fair ability. You've got your FA coaching badge. Now, we're starting to, to fast forward to, to 1974. So I want to know what was the, the motivation to, to move to Melbourne and, and move to, to South Melbourne to continue well, at this stage your playing career? Well, in, in actual fact, um, I, my wife and I had some really good friends who'd been studying in London, uh, female friends they were. They, they used to teach part-time with, at my wife's school. 
And that was how we became good friends. And they said to us, look, we're going back to live in Australia now after four years in London. Um, why don't you come with us and spend a bit of time in Australia? And I'd always fancied living in a warm climate where, you know, um, it didn't rain every Saturday and you could do other things. And so the attraction was too much. And my wife and I decided that we would um, come back to Melbourne. Well, not come back. We would go out to Melbourne where our friends' parents had um, generously offered their accommodation and that for a few weeks until we got ourselves sorted out. And that, that's really what happened. And um, I remember going to Middle Park to watch some games. And I, my wife and I, um, we didn't have a car in those days. So I needed to find a club that trained by the train line. And at Middle Park, there was Melbourne and South Melbourne Hellas. And, and so that was how I happened to join South Melbourne. I, uh, I rang up Sam Pappasavis and said, can I have a trial for your club? I think I'm good enough to play in it. And um, that was how it all started. It was a, the perfect sort of launch pad for, um, for your, your career in coaching because by, by 1975, um, you appointed the State Director of Coaching at Victoria, the, a, a position that you held on uh, to or held to um, until yeah. 1978. And, yep. and you know, there's a, a wonderful <clears throat> story after 78. But, but that first role, how, how did that come about? Well, really, it came about because um, I, I couldn't play and I'd been in, obviously, from the age of 19 onwards, I was really interested in coaching. And I started to organise clinics for kids. And um, I went to Soccer House to get some advice and assistance. And George Wallace, who was the secretary at the time, was a great, great guy, great help. Uh, he gave me a lot of good advice and assistance in that. And I recruited a number of players who were playing in what was then the the State League, who were all teachers, as like John Kennedy, Jimmy Armstrong. Uh, Johnny Gardner, was a, he wasn't a teacher, but he was available. Gary Cole was a young teacher in those days mm -hmm. as well. Um, and uh, I was kind of like the catalyst for getting people together and doing things, and that was the start of it. And I think that had a lot to do with my appointment um, a year or so later. But um, I had a teaching background, and I, in those days, to have the FA uh, full badge, as they called it, was mm. quite rare. Mm. And so it was, um, it was a ticket to opportunity at the time, and I acknowledged that. <laughs> um, but um, it, did, it gave me an opportunity of getting on the ground floor. Eric Worthington had been appointed as the national coaching director a few years before that, I didn't know Eric at the time, um, but it was um, it was an opportunity to get in on the ground floor. And I thought myself at the time, if if I couldn't play full time, well, then coaching was probably the next best thing. And uh, and your first uh, role at the national level emerges around this time. Your assistant coach to to Jim Shoulder um, for twenty six matches, uh, including the nineteen seventy eight World Cup qualification uh, period, yeah. and, until. Uh, Jim, what's well, a failed one of the many failed campaigns uh, after? Mm. But this is this is only four years after we've just qualified, so I guess expectation would have been pretty high. Yes, it was, um, and the situation was quite tricky. Um, I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy had, 
uh, taken a job in the ACT as the director of coaching and applied for the national coaching job, really, um, as it, it, I don't think he was serious. Um, but because of politics at the time, and I won't go into those right now, um, somebody else should have had the job, but uh, Jimmy finished up with it. And in those days, he didn't know many people. We had done some work together um, on coaching courses. And when he, he got the job, uh, he rang me and said, um, how would you how would you feel about helping me with the national team? And uh, I said, well, um, I'd be absolutely delighted, Jim, obviously. But um, uh, we... Uh, we were criticised quite heavily by Philip in the media and looking back on it, I can understand that. But it's like most things in life, if an opportunity comes along, you don't say no. Mm, mm. You know, most mm. people, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're given the opportunity to do something, then you you take it. And uh, the campaign was, was difficult. But, uh, you know, in the end, there was the odd goal here and there. We played in Iran in front of 100,000 and many of the Aussie team. It was the first time I'd ever been overseas. Mm. And people don't realise what it was like back then. Uh, many of the players had to give up their jobs. None of them were paid, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that really was the ground floor uh, and was really an extension of what happened in 74. It was just um, a little bit. Uh, tougher and maybe you know on another day we may well have qualified for that but we didn't and that's a great you, experience yeah I can imagine and, and you're still a pretty young man and very yes, early in your coaching career at this stage and 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 but then not many people know uh, I think this is a, a part of your career that's sort of uh, buried uh, away and, and doesn't get referenced a lot but in 1979 you you end up at, in uh, Keflavik in Iceland Yes. How, how how does that happen, Ron? How do you go from moving from from uh, from London to Melbourne, uh, and uh, and yeah. suddenly you, you, your head must have been spinning when you when you're in Iceland? <laughs> well, it it was it was a strange scenario. My wife and I came out to Australia, um, but we hadn't really discussed uh, living in Australia forever. We were kind of like a bit. We were emulating what our Aussie friends had done in spending some time overseas in London and we went to Australia and our first son was born and we were under a lot of pressure from back home from the parents to go back home and so on. And around the time, my wife, Alison, she wasn't quite sure where she wanted to live. And I thought to myself, well, there's, you can't force those things. We'd better go and spend some time uh, back in, in the UK. But it was difficult um, moving back to London because of the cost of it. And so we were living uh, outside of London. I had a few opportunities um, to uh, get coaching gigs in London, but we didn't really want to go back and live there. Um, and so I finished up a, a, a friend who wanted to get me back in London in coaching, said, look, I've got an offer for you to, to go and spend a year working with me in Iceland. Um, we've got to look after two clubs between us. And I said, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and so it it kind of happened. And during that time, it was a wonderful experience, I must admit. But during that time, my wife and I did a bit of soul searching and decided that we would um, go back to, to live in Australia at the first opportunity. 
and um, that came after the end. So we had a year to plan to return to Australia while I was um, coaching in Iceland. Well, it sounds inevitable, Ron, given that you said earlier on that you're a bloke who sort of uh, uh, liked the idea of uh, living in a warmer climate, uh, and I, I suspect that Iceland didn't exactly fit that brief. So, so I mean, and, and let's not uh, under, understate the, the fact that Keflavik were four-time Icelandic champions, and uh, and we know uh, of of recent years have become a, a you know they're not a powerhouse, but they're certainly a nation who has a, a proud football history, who has uh, had um, some some pretty heady height. You come back to Australia. And, and and it's not long after that um, that the the seminal moment really occurs, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. uh, it's the birth of the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, uh, Sir Arthur George is the president of the Australian Soccer Federation, as it was at that time. A very influential man in government, he persuades uh, government to include football um, uh, as Australia were about to host the 1981 Youth World Cup. Correct. Uh, now, now you don't start immediately. Um, uh, funnily enough. Um, uh, Jimmy Shoulder is the inaugural head coach, but in year two, you come in as the assistant coach. Yeah, Don Talbot, I was coaching. I returned to Australia um, as the coaching director in Queensland in 1980. And I applied for the job as their coach and Don Talbot interviewed me. Uh, he actually travelled around the country and he interviewed me in Brisbane and said, look, if you don't get the job as head coach, would you be interested in coming in the year after as an assistant? And I said, absolutely. Um, I, the thought of working with really good young players every day was like a dream. Um, and any opportunity to do that, um, I, I was up for. And so as it happened, Jimmy got the job. Obviously, I'd worked with Jimmy previously, and um, but it wasn't the sole reason. Um, Don Talbot sort of gave me the inkling at the time that if I didn't get the job as head coach, there was going to be opportunities for assistant coaches to come in in 1982 across across the board. And that's exactly what happened. So um, that was the start. Yeah. yeah, that was the start of my 14 years or however long it was um, in heaven. <laughs> yeah, well, so let's let's get closer to the heaven where you are actually the head coach, and and this is where that golden generation that is so often discussed when uh, your career is talked about. Uh, yeah, and 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 you know we're talking about uh, all these years later. It's twenty twenty two. We're talking about that golden generation peaking in the two thousand and six World Cup, but yeah. but that's with the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight. You're at the AIS. It's uh, it's in its early days. There's no there's no David Gallops on the horizon, ready to cut it off at the knees with budget cuts years down the track. And 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 the future's just bright. And there's this this catalogue of, of of young talent that comes under your watch. So I suppose what football fans are most interested in knowing, and this is where you know your crystallisation of, or, or at least the crystallisation of of your uh, analysis and, and and approach to digital video analysis uh, uh, within football, which which has been obviously uh, uh, well had been and has since been picked up and and used just as a day to day approach to training. Um, but it, it was in the early days, and you, and you were pioneering this. So, so, so tell us what was going on in that hotbed of talent and exciting ideas and a future that was yet to come. Well, <clears throat> we really had a blank page, to use a good old cliche. Um, nobody had ever had this sort of a program before. 
And so we were in on the ground floor. And it was a catalyst for um, really thinking about how we got individuals. Mm. And so over the years, and I mean this literally, over years, we tried all sorts of things, but it was the environment to do it in. Our challenge was, can we produce better quality individuals and and not um, being in the situation where we were going to be judged whether we won a competition? The judgment was about the quality of players that would leave the programme. And <clears throat> we didn't know everything in the beginning, but <coughs> over time, we tried things to do with improving technique, understanding. One of the things that we we started with straight away in the early 80s was to play out from the back um, because it was, um, it, was, it was changing in football. It was becoming obvious at the time that back players or centre-backs had to become far more confident on the ball and being able to play through midfield when they got in there and so on. And at the time, we didn't have a good record of that. And so that was one of the things that we really had to focus on. And in the early days, we converted uh, a number of midfield players to play at the back because they had confidence on the ball uh, when they got into midfield. So for some of them, we had to basically teach them about defending. Um, but that was just one example. Um, the physical side of the game was something else that we started to focus on. We started to profile players as early as the late 80s. And this didn't all happen overnight. Um, and it, it was something that evolved over years. And we kept kind of challenging ourselves to do things better each year. How, what could we learn from what we did? And how could we become um, more skilled at utilising the time available to actually improve individual players? And obviously, technique was a large part of it. One of the things in the early days was the introduction of sports science. And the sports scientists were just like the coaches. Everyone was kind of thrown together. And it was a case of saying, so how can we help you? Or what have you got to offer? And so on. And the the exercise physiologists, Alan Hahn and Doug Tumotley, uh, became like our best friends, particularly Doug, because he, he worked very closely with us um, for, for years. And the interest was about how can we develop players and what do we know about the requirements of the game? So it really was pioneer work. And we discovered a lot of things about individuals. And we started to then collect information about the players who went on to play in professional football in Europe. What sort of profile did they have? And so we could backtrack looking at data that we'd accumulated for more than 10 years and almost predict which players had a chance of surviving at the top level. A lot of people don't realise it, but it's the ability to survive the physical demands of the game that determines whether you're going to make it as a full-time player in Europe. Mm. Uh, the assumption is that you are a good player. There are hundreds of thousands of good players, but the ones that really make the mark in 99% of cases, and I can give you a good example of an exception to the rule, but it's the physical side of the game. 
that you have to be able to be able to cope with. Yeah, and uh, you haven't name checked um, any players in in um, your description of of what happened at the AIS, but uh, those of us and and many of our listeners will well and truly know that a huge core of the Socceroos stars of the two thousands came through. Uh, that names like Aloisi, Craig Moore, Lucas Neal, Brett Hibben, yeah. and not the least of which was uh, Mark Viduka, who you know he, he's quoted on the record as saying the AIS basically made me as a player. It was sort of like an mm-hmm. academy in England. We had so much intense football in that two years and I came out of the AIS a different player than going in. So, you know, if that um, isn't uh, sufficiently uh, uh, a, a, a yeah. rubber stamp for, for what was going on there at the time um, in your, uh, well, your, your 10 years as head coach, then um, I don't know what would be. But, you know, all things end and, and the golden generation hasn't come to its full flower uh, at the point where you finish. That's yet to come. But you, you head off for one of the, 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 the real career highlights uh, of your career. You leave um, the AIS and you head over to Malaysia, to Sabah, who, uh, who won the M League for the first time in the club's history and reached the Malaysian Cup final um, under your watch. Now, now, and the team that they played is sort of the, uh, well, the so-called Manchester United of Malaysia, Selangor, uh, in front of 82,000. Yeah. As, as a head coach um, and, and actually turning what you'd, uh, you'd taught and practised in the AIS environment to standing in the technical area and seeing it all come to fruition must have been a special feeling for you, Ron. Um, it, it was actually because when you're in the player development arena, results are secondary. They're still really important. And we always stress the player's job is to go and win every game. And you've got to be able to compete to do that. But the focus, you rotate players and give them game time. Um, and you work on very much individual things within a team setting. When you go into the competitive arena and it's all about getting points, then that is the sole criteria. Mm. You've got to win. And how you get the wins and how you treat the players is very different to when you're in youth development work. Um, and sometimes in youth development, you have, to, you have to keep reminding yourself that it's not about winning a competition. It's about giving up opportunity to players to learn from making mistakes and you know they're going to do it. In a competitive environment, you act for your place in the team. And in some respects, it's much easier as a coach to keep picking the players that you think are the best ones every week and to get a result. You have other issues in dealing with people who are not getting picked, but we won't go there at the moment. But it's a very different environment. And I actually really enjoyed it. Um, And I... I, I wanted to move into that area um, for a number of reasons, um, professionally development um, or developing professionally, I should say, um, and the challenge of it and the excitement of taking a team that was languishing in the bottom three of a league and having to turn it around. And um, I, I managed to achieve that in a short space of time by being very dogmatic about what the players were going to do. I moved a few players in their positions, but essentially I stopped the team from conceding goals for fun. Um, and that was the first the first step. But that initial three months where I took over Sabah and they were 13th out of 15 and had 
won one game in 13. Um, we finished up winning five of our last seven games and drawing two um, and came fifth in the league. And that that basically um, got me job offers for the next 20 years. But at the point where you decided to come back to Australia, um, yeah. th th those job offers uh, uh, haven't yet really fully uh, uh, formed in Australia. So so you you end up um, travelling to Paris and meeting with Gerard Julio and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you find yourself at Anfield uh, um, uh, doing video analysis before you come back to Australia. Yeah, it was. It was an interesting time. Um, and I can tell you how that happened. It was... It was Liverpool's interest in signing Harry Kuehl and Bernie Mandic was his manager at the time. And um, in the year or two prior to that, I, I actually met Bernie and we developed a bit of a friendship. And he, he said to me one day, he rang me up and he said, would you like to have lunch with Gerard Houllier in Paris? <laughs> and I said, are you, are you for real? Uh, anyway, he wasn't. It happened. And I, I, I went there and as, as an outcome of that, um, Gerard said to me, look, um, if you want to come and spend some time with us at Liverpool, you're more than welcome. Uh, I'll pay all your expenses. You can come for one month, two months, three months. I don't mind. Um, be my guest. And I was coaching in Malaysia at the time. And so I, I said to him, look, I can't come right now because... We're still in season mode, but when the season ends, um, I'd love to come and spend a month with you at Liverpool. And that's that's basically what happened at the time. And uh, he was fantastic, um, Gerard, and um, he treated me tremendously well. And I, I can recall him asking me to give a presentation about some of the research I was doing to um, <clears throat> Phil Thompson and Sammy Lee, who was the, the, they were his assistant manager and first team coach at the time. And that was, that was a bit daunting uh, to go into that sort of company. But anyway, uh, I did it and I, I gave them the benefit of what I'd been working on at the time. And I can recall Sammy saying uh, to Phil, there was the three of us in front of a computer screen and TV and that. And he said, <clears throat> how many times have I been saying we need to do more of this? And, <laughs> you know, and it was... Um, it was a real icebreaker and Sammy Lee's a fantastic guy um, and a pleasure to be around. So I had a great time for a month at Liverpool um, and very fond memories of it. So, uh, yes, it was it was a great time. But you head back to Australia and, um, and, and we're now on the dawn of that golden generation that you'd spent so much time with yeah. uh, who are about to emerge. But, but uh, what they say there, it's all the, the, the darkest hour is just before dawn. <laughs> and uh, poor old Frank Farina found that out um, as uh, he was sacked um, in 2005. And so you're back in yeah. Australia and, and, uh, and this golden generation are now the, um, the, the thoroughbreds of Australian football playing in the top flight competitions around the world. And uh, and pretty much every single one of them knows you. Uh, they know uh, where they mm. learnt their craft, and so the, uh, what it was obviously a natural fit uh, after uh, after Frank uh, is uh, is given his marching orders yeah. is to appoint you as the interim coach of the Socceroos before Kusurik 
political setting is famously appointed. Um, uh, and, and so this is a period of, 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 of just a few months where you're in charge of the team before you hand on the baton to Goose. I'm not sure why that, that happened, um, but I can say I've probably got the best record of any national coach because I never lost a game. <laughs> I actually didn't. I wasn't in charge of one either. So, um, yeah, that was a, it was a token more than anything else. And as an interim, um, I think everyone knew there weren't going to be any games. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, really quite sure why that happened. But, um, yes, it was um, it was unfortunate for Frank. Um, I, uh, I When I came back from Malaysia in 2002, I'd had a number of conversations with Frank before that. He wanted to get me back involved with the national team because I'd been his coach when he was a, a young player and he knew he could trust me 100%. Um, and it was, a, it was a question of timing. Um, Frank um, took the team and won against England at Upton Park in about 2003. And that was a catalyst um, to try and work with Frank. He, he'd spoken to me around that time and wanted to get me back in. I'd come back from Malaysia in 2002 after the World Cup. Um, and I was very keen. I was very keen um, to share some of the stuff that I'd been looking at um, from game analysis and such. Because I'd spent, after spending four years working in the clubs, I was seconded to work at the FA in Malaysia as a request of the royal family. And in Malaysia, if the royal family asks for something, they get it. And um, although I was having a great time working in the competitive end of the game, um, I really, I was, I was given an ultimatum. The royal family want you to work at the FA. And so if you don't agree, you probably won't be coaching anywhere next year in Malaysia. Um, and so I, it, it wasn't that I didn't want to do the job. But I was having too much enjoyment working in the competitive end of the game. Mm. But I acknowledged also how difficult it was at the time to come back to Australia. Uh, Full-time jobs were so far and few between at the time. So um, I kind of accepted the offer um, and said I would work at the FA for three years. I set up a program just like the AIS and I was in charge of coach education in the country. And that's what happened until I, I came back. So, but that was good. Um, the program that I set up uh, is still going. And the people that I trained to take over in Coach Ed and at the football school were there for the best part of 10 years after I left. Yeah, so that was, um, that was a rewarding experience. And I still have some contact with those people. Yeah, and your legacy in, in Malaysia, uh, Malaysian football, as it continues to, to to rise and emerge as one of the Asian powers, um, is, is immense. And and uh, and just but moving back uh, to to uh, your role within that Australian team and uh, and that uh, that golden generation period where you know you, you finish up at that interim period and, yeah. and stay on as technical manager, and then and then everything just imagine uh, emerges uh, that that wonderful night at uh, at Homebush against Uruguay. Oh um, yeah. Where where so many dreams finally came true um, after all those years, and then the two thousand and six World Cup. Yes, um, <clears throat> leading up to that, a lot of people don't know, but there was so much 
groundwork put into the preparation for the 2005 um, qualifying period to get in the 2006 World Cup. Um, at least 12 months before we knew we'd have to play a sudden death game, we didn't know who it might be against. But if we were going to be there, then we had to pre prepare and plan for it. And John Boltby, who was the high performance manager at the time, um, started, he was the catalyst for this, and he had a brilliant mind, John, extremely thorough and professional. And we had a group of probably 20 to 25 people who met every second Monday in Sydney for the whole day. And it was about what can we control to be able to qualify in that event that we had a playoff game in 2005 in November. And we spent um, six to eight months with continual work, feedback, achievement, planning, even to the point of what do we do if we have to play Ecuador altitude? Um, we'd been in contact with Argentina, uh, asking them what they did on match day. Um, how, how have they coped with playing Ecuador in at altitude in all the all the years that they've played? And they shared their knowledge with us. We did all sorts of things. I led a team of six coaches to go and um, watch every team that we might meet from six months out throughout the um, World Cup qualifiers in South America. It really was um, a very, very thorough and uh, process of planning for every possible eventuality. And um, fortunately, it all paid off. And having Gus come in, um, Gus actually had so much experience and connections at FIFA that he was in a position to really give some great advice about what we should do and how we might go about it. And um, that's a story in itself. So I'll leave it there for that one. But I never forget the night. It was fantastic. And all those years ago, I used to say to a lot of the young players, you never know, lads, one day you might be playing in the World Cup, you know. And here it was 10 years later. Um, and I never forget that the emotion in the dressing room with a lot of the players. And they all sort of said, you remember when you used to say, and I said, yes, through tears. Yes, I remember. <laughs> um, it was uh, It was just a fantastic night. And, this you know, there's one thing I would like, I'd, lo I'd love the listeners to, to know this. Everyone gets caught up in the dressing room, the, the enjoyment, and, oh, I don't know, the celebrations have been going for probably 30 minutes, and I saw Viduka walk through the door, and I said to him, he was still in his playing gear, and I said, where have you been? And he said, I had to do a drug test, right? And he missed everything in that dressing room for 35 minutes because he was pulled aside to provide a urine sample and they wouldn't let him out of the room until he did it. And I thought that was an absolute travesty, that something that happens once in a lifetime, he missed because of petty rules and regulations 
I mean, surely somebody could have come in the dressing room with him yeah. <laughs> and at least he could have enjoyed the celebrations. But, yeah, um, that that was uh, the worst bit about the whole celebration in the evening. Ron, fast-forwarding uh, past the World Cup and past your, your stint with Perth Glory, you remained involved uh, with the senior national team, with Arnie at the 2008 Olympics, uh, with Pim yeah. as his technical analyst in South Africa and with Holger as well. Could you just talk us through your feeling throughout those years to have been back all the way back when with Jim Shoulder to have then built to this point where Australia was playing at World Cups and you were at a point where you were regarded so highly and you'd, you'd worked with these guys through the AIS and they were then peaking in their career. Did you take a second to, to look around and consider what you'd achieved or was it very much just business as usual and, and continuing to push on through those years? Um, I know it sounds a bit blasé, <clears throat> but I... Um... I've always tried to keep developing with age and <clears throat> I was I was one person being quite a bit older than most of the others who embraced technology and in a way <clears throat> as I as I moved from being a, a coach in youth development into senior football and the competitive environment working with national teams not only as a coach, but as an analyst. And um, I suppose in, in many respects, I was, a, I was a bit of a pioneer for um, notational analysis and using software. Um, it, it kind of kept me at the forefront of football. And because, because of my background in the game and I guess an inner drive to keep finding out more about what happens in the game, and how you can use information to benefit the development of players and teams, it kind of kept me there. And um, I, I really enjoyed working for the national team. I, I was only part-time. So when I worked um, for Gus and for Pim and for Holger, I basically was, I was working about three months of the year. And during that period was when I did my PhD. So I was kind of a full-time student with a few months off during the year um, to actually put some of the theory into practice and do a job and earn some money. Um, but I was really deep into the analysis and and trying to work out, you know, a lot to do with how goals are scored, which is really what was driving me at the time. And um, it is what it is, you know, um, sometimes... A lot of people um, would treasure a part-time job, and I, I was one who did, and it fitted in with the lifestyle. Um, I didn't really want a full-time job at that stage, um, so yeah, it was it was an exciting time and one that I look back uh, fondly, and um, it was a pleasure to work not only for for Gus, and that was the shortest time actually. But Pim, Pim was a lovely man, sadly passed away a couple of years ago um, with cancer. But um, I remember when I, I had a heart attacks in 2009 and I was in hospital, I had a quadruple bypass and Pim rang me and said, Ronnie, <clears throat> don't worry about our next two matches. He said, we'll beat Qatar in a couple of weeks and we'll have qualified. You just make sure you get yourself fit to be able to come to the World Cup in South Africa. And um, that meant um, a, a huge amount to me um, in the hospital bed. And, uh, and it, it, that's what happened. 
And um, that was where I made the decision then that I wasn't going to be a head coach anymore after that. <laughs> I might love the game, but I didn't particularly want to die for it. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and evidently that desire to continue to learn and continue to grow has kept you at the forefront because you're still involved with the national team program currently as a as a technical advisor, working closely with Trevor Morgan, who I hope you don't mind me saying might be considered perhaps uh, your, your successor to the sort of head of Australian uh, coaching development. So could you just take us through uh, how you're feeling your days currently and what you're currently yeah, providing and, and working with Trevor uh, towards uh, with Australian football? Well, it was a couple of years ago. Um... I, w I was asked um, by the FA, by James Johnson, if I would kind of like come out of retirement, so to speak, and um, help Trevor, who'd been appointed as the TD, to give him support, and also to be available to consult in any sort of capacity that was deemed um, in need of some opinion, advice, whatever. And I said, uh, I would be delighted to do that, and it was great. Uh, to be a support for Trevor, who uh, in that two-year period as as the TD did a fantastic job, and a lot of people don't know so much about Trev that he's he spent a few decades in coach education, player development, and um, was a really good choice for that role, and uh, was also in a took over that that position at a really difficult time where we had COVID and all that that entailed so um yeah so that's and i'm i'm still working in that um i my my focus my major focus over the last um two years has been in the coach education area which is an area that i've always had a, a lot of passion for and was the catalyst for my first full-time employment in football so um it was a natural thing for me to do let's put it that way and just to close, uh, Ron, before I hand you back to Rob, as we got you on for the interview uh, this evening, you said, oh, hang on, I've just got to flick the TV off. I've just got a game on. Uh, so you're clearly still enthralled after such a, such a rich life in the game, basically, that the game still clearly, uh, still clearly has you gripped. So have you been able to drill down what it is about coaching and football that keeps you coming back day after day? Um, I think thirst for knowledge. Um, I, I, I look at football from slightly different eyes these days, as you do, the, the more you start to learn about the game and what players do, and that's the key bit, is what players do um, that really makes the difference. The question is, how do you get them to do it? And do they always understand what they do? And, and you know, it's that thirst for knowledge, I guess, that just keeps me um, so interested and involved in the game. Well, Ron, um, it's clearly evident that all these years later, um, you know, you're a man in your mid-70s, you started off as a boy with a dream to play football for Spurs, but all these years later, you uh, are an elder statesman of a game in a country across the world uh, and, uh, and pivotal in breaking a, a drought that was, uh, uh, at times, it felt that it would never end. And, um, and if, uh, other than all of the other things we've talked about on the show, uh, and this conversation, if you remembered for one thing alone 
amongst all of the, 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 the glittering success you've had, um, that would be a highlight, but it's not the only one, clearly. And uh, Ron, uh, we're really grateful that you've given us your time today to talk about Ron Smith, the man, as opposed to, you know, the, the deep dive into your uh, your footballing philosophies as such. And um, I, I hope that our listeners uh, have enjoyed finding out a little bit more about you, what makes you tick and, um, and where you come from and where you are now. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. And Willem, thank you. Thank you, Ron Smith, the great Ron Smith. He uh, is a legend of the game in this country and uh, he will uh, still be around for many years to come. And, uh, and, and there will be <laughs> so. other, other parts next, Ron, to his legacy. Please subscribe to Box to Box, Box to Box Stoppage Time and Box to Box Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.